This episode is brought to you in part by B&H Publishing Group. Sam Alberry's new kids' book, God's Go-Togethers, provides a helpful foundation for explaining why God made men and women as a special pair to complement each other in marriage and beyond. Learn more at godsgotogethers.com. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. So, okay, so we've, we've kind of mapped out the basic here that, there, that it depends on whether – you know, actually, this problem is also faced in the West. Uh, I was just in Australia this summer uh, talking to them about the abortion issue, which, yeah. uh, which of course, uh, is something grappled with all around the world. And in a country where the Christian population influence is about 2%, that's right. Um, very, very small, and it it is a post-Christian, very much kind of post-modernish kind of culture. Very much in the minority. Absolutely next to no chance of having any structural political influence because of the mm-hmm. lack of numbers, mm-hmm. etc. Uh, the way in which to approach a social issue like abortion is mm-hmm. limited by the by where they find themselves. That's right. Um, yeah. And, so, so let, I'm bringing up that example to show that it isn't uh, that that the minority majority issue is almost bigger than the East West mm. or or uh, two thirds world uh, majority world uh, non majority world contrast. Um, right. Okay, so let's talk about that a little bit. Let's talk about uh, let, let's talk about how cultural engagement is different when you are a significant minority. Let's start there because I think that's where that's what Christians here sometimes may have a hard time getting their hands around. Yeah. I, but, but let me start uh, first, Daryl, if you don't mind, okay. with that similarity part. Okay. Because I think it is important that, that we understand that Christians everywhere are going to be salt and light. Right. You know, that's what we're called to do. Uh, we're called to be salt and light within our cultures, no matter where we are. Uh, so that's sort of the commonality. That's the, the biblical injunction that we can take forward. But, uh, but given that, the question is, how do we do that uh, within our culture? And that's, of course, where the differences are. And, and I think that, that my, I don't want to say I'm a disappointment, mm-hmm. but it might be, uh, to use that word, my disappointment is that sometimes Christians in North America think about cultural engagement in a way that is simply, and, and they think this is the way that Christians should do it all around the world, mm-hmm. but without a recognition that the, the context is different. And, and their way of thinking about Christian engagement with the culture is not going to work in India. Mm-hmm. It's not going to work in in Egypt. Mm-hmm. It's not going to work in Latin America mm-hmm. uh, because the context is so radically different. And and it may be that the way they're thinking about it in terms of and and oftentimes it has to do with with political mm-hmm. uh, engagement because of the fact that they have a majority and mm-hmm. within a democratic society uh, they're able to uh, work through that political process. Uh, to try to accomplish, as it were, a, a, an agenda which they think uh, fits uh, their Christian worldview. Uh, that, my friend, is not going to work in India. Uh, and so one wonders whether Christians, even within the West, shouldn't be thinking, uh, is this really the best way to engage Christian culture or engage uh, culture from a Christian point of view? 
Or are there other ways, are there other ways we can think of and perhaps learn from in those uh, areas, those cultures that are not dominated by Christian thinking, and yet there are Christians there who are living out their Christian life. And of course, the reality is, is I think we're learning as we move from election to election. That's right. That the numbers here are not such that you can dictate an agenda. That's right. And so the question becomes, how do you function as salt and light in the context in which, uh, in which there is going to be a resistance and opposition and challenge to what it is you're going to want to put on the table? Uh, and, and I yeah. think that uh, it just so happens that right now I'm working in in Matthew 10, which is on mission, and a lot of that chapter of Matthew mm-hmm. is dealing with how do you engage in a mission in which there are going to be a lot of people who don't like what you're saying. That's right. And um, and, and there's going to be rejection. There's going to even be hostility. Uh, of course, we don't. We see a little bit of that now and yeah. then. And so, uh, how do you how do you deal with those challenges, uh, whether you think you have numbers or not, I actually think that one of the mistakes we make in cultural engagement is to see cultural engagement as being I'm, – I'm going to make a contrast here that's going to sound uh, stronger than I intended, but it's the only way to picture it. Do we deal from a position in which we claim to have power? Or do we deal from a position in which we claim to serve our society? That's the contrast I want to put out on the and I, table. And I think that's an excellent contrast. And so what has happened, I think, in, in the West, and particularly North America, is that through uh, terms such as culture wars, mm-hmm. uh, we think in terms of power. Right. Uh, and we think that in order to win this war, we need to, to exercise our power within the culture. And within a, a democracy such as we have here, that often means power at the at the ballot box. Mm-hmm. And, but as you said, uh, that quote power is continues to diminish uh, within uh, North America. And so the question is, are we really? Is this really the best way to frame our thinking about cultural engagement? Uh, is to think about culture wars and power. Or are there different ways in which we can think about cultural engagement, ways in which uh, Christians uh, for millennia have been operating uh-huh. in, case, in situations out of weakness and a, a minority position? Uh, and that, I think, is something that we might look at in terms of, of the growing trends within the West. Okay. So go there. Uh, what, what do those look like? What can we learn from what you see around the world in terms of the way engagement can, can function? What are the other, other models or frames around which we can place uh, Christian involvement that, that – uh, that also at the same time show the potential and power of what it is that Christians are about in the gospel. Yeah. Darrell, have you read uh, James Hunter's book, Change the World to Change the World? Yes. Yeah. You know, that's sort of a, a book that I read about a year ago, and I continue to reflect on, and in a positive way, in the sense that that what he's talking about there, and and we can summarize that in a minute, mm-hmm. but, but what he's talking about there does seem to describe and provide a conceptual framework for thinking about cultural engagement in settings where, as I've described, Christians are a minority, even a a persecuted minority, and don't have the power, the political power, to accomplish their agendas. Mm -hmm. Uh, That framework that he lays out uh, seems to – it resonates with me. And I wonder if that's not 
uh, if you would ask me where would I go in terms of cultural engagement, uh, some of the, the ways that he's framed that, uh, that discussion might be helpful. Like? <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, what, what Hunter says, if, and if, if I can uh, describe him or, or summarize him accurately, mm-hmm. is, it, is that uh, some of the things I've been saying about, about uh, trying to accomplish a, a Christian agenda through the political process or through uh, power structures uh, may not be our primary objective. Mm-hmm. It may come about just as we live our Christian lives, but, uh, but it's, it, that's, that would be a secondary outcome rather than a primary objective. And that's an important distinction to make. Okay. And the other thing that it seems to me is in play here is thinking through how do Christians um, be Christians and serve well. I mean, if that's I can, right. if I can think about, you know, when I look at the biblical exhortations of, say, an epistle like First Peter, where it's talking about life as a Christian in the context in which obviously Christians were a terrific minority in the in the first century. Um, basically, his exhortation is: be a good citizen. Absolutely. Um, live well with those around you. Serve faithfully. Uh, engage ethically. Uh, you know that it, it's just basically looking to see where you can be a positive influence on that which is going on around you and contribute in such a way that people see uh, the value of who you are as a human being and maybe, uh, to use the words of Matthew, you know, might see your good works and give, and glorify the Father in heaven. So um, is, is that the kind of direction that we're talking about and that the kind of emphasis uh, that, we're, that we're seeing? I think it is, yeah. And and that uh, that quote, by the way, uh, that they might see your good works and glorify uh, uh, God who is in heaven. And First Peter, actually, you have a very similar situation that mm-hmm. they might see your good works and and on the and glorify God on the day that He visits us. That's right. Uh, so the same idea uh, is there. Uh, the other passage I think of is First uh, Timothy chapter two, mm-hmm. when Paul exhorts. He begins with the pray for all. People, right, and especially kings and those in authority. Mm-hmm. This is why, uh, because this pleases God, who desires all men to come to a knowledge of the truth. Uh, for there's one God and one mediator, uh, Jesus Christ, uh, who, who Himself is human. And then Paul says, uh, "For this very reason, I was made a herald, an apostle, uh, uh, one who proclaims the gospel to the nations." And so, what what Paul does there is he looks at that exclusivity of what God has done in Christ, and says, "Because of that, we have an inclusive mission to pray and to proclaim, uh, and match that together with what you're saying in First Peter to live out our lives in a way that they might see our good works." And glorify God, uh, that it begins at that personal level of discipleship of what we're doing in our family life and what we're doing in our in our congregational life. That's where it begins. So, how do we uh, live uh, out our lives in a way that that people will see uh, that light in the midst of darkness? Now, you know what's interesting is we did a podcast recently uh, with Andy Crouch talking about culture making, mm-hmm. and this was his emphasis too. That really we tend to go global and political when perhaps we ought to think more local about our influence and how we can influence the things that we're more directly uh, in many ways involved with. And it's a similar kind of emphasis in some ways. 
So how does, uh, again, learning from what you see globally, when you look at what's going on globally, are there models of that kind of engagement that you see that you can share with us that might be helpful in helping people kind of flesh out what we're talking about? Yeah, I, I think that that is the, the, what we see happening in those kind of contexts uh, where, where Christians are being faithful uh, to what God has called them to be. And if God has called them to be a businessman, then they're being faithful within that context. If God has called them to be a teacher, they're being faithful before their students. And, and faithful, I think, uh, means several things. It means living out the Christian life uh, in a way that's open for other people to see uh, and also to, uh, to be uh, competent in what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, whatever you do, do it for, this, for the glory of God. Uh, so they're, they're doing it well. Uh, they're not being sloppy. They're being lazy. They're being diligent. They're competent, um, and and with that focus in mind, this is this is a part of being a, a testimony to Christ within the area that they're called. If they are called to civil service, if they all are called to government or to a life in military, uh, they live out their Christian experience uh, within those contexts, uh, and and that I think is a way that. Uh, uh, that is, it, it happens in every culture. Mm-hmm. It can happen in every culture, mm-hmm. uh, and and without thinking of the well, we have to take over this political structure, or we have to change this this uh, uh, particular way of of uh, power engagement. So, uh, just as an example, if uh, I mean, I, I think of the person who say is a. Uh, I, I'll give a hard example. I, I know this happens in the Middle East. Um, You've got a Christian who's either in politics or in the army. Yep. Um, obviously, the country's concerns are <laughs> are not being driven by the church. Right. Um, how 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 does a person function in that context? What, when you were talking about this kind of a model, what are they what are they doing? What are they looking at? How are they thinking about it? It's a hard question. Maybe I need to step into their shoes and uh, really deal uh, with uh, the issues at hand. Uh, And I think that sometimes there there may be tremendous conflicts uh, between what they see as their Christian values, Mm -hmm. uh, and yet in those situations around them, there are values that are very contrary Mm -hmm. uh, to what's happening. I can think of several testimonies I've heard of uh, of for instance, a Chinese Christian who uh, there there was influence on him to cover up uh, certain kinds of corruption, certain kinds of things that were happening within the manufacturing plant hmm. uh, that was in China. But as a believer, uh, he said he couldn't do that. Uh, that that uh, he he wanted to be above that, uh, and because of that, he lost his job. Hmm. But he maintained his Christian testimony. Later on, of course, God used that mm-hmm. in the lives of other people uh, so that other people came to know Christ mm-hmm. uh, through that example. So in those kind of contexts, that's not going to be an easy thing because a lot of times those values around you are, con- are in conflict. Conf- are in conflict. Yeah. Uh, it's, whereas here in the West, we may feel comfortable because the choices we make to live out a Christian life uh, may not meet that same kind of resistance. Uh, whereas in the situations you're talking about, 
uh, in the Middle East, for instance, uh, when a, 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 a soldier is in, a, in, in military or, uh, or somebody who's in government may find that there's more and more conflict, uh, but yet to retain that Christian witness uh, becomes a, a, such an important part of what it is to be a Christian. So how are the schools – you said there are some courses that deal with helping civil servants and that kind of thing. What kinds of, what kinds of courses are those and what are, they, what are they doing? How are they helping, how are they helping their students face what they're going to face? Yeah. Think of, of schools in uh, Singapore, for instance. Uh, you know, seminaries there, uh, the traditional seminary, of course, that has, has for many years uh, uh, trained, focused on uh, pastors, on uh, teachers, and so forth, but then began to see openings uh, within uh, the broader church context uh, of, of businessmen who also wanted to, to learn about uh, scriptures and wanted to learn about how to live their Christian life within a business context, within the business world. Uh, and the, the point here is there's, there's integration. Uh, that is, our Christian life is not segmented mm-hmm. into what we do on Sunday, uh, what we do in our family, what we do in our church, and then there's also what we do in our business, but that's different mm-hmm. than what we're doing on Sunday mornings. So how do we actually bring integration uh, within that? And I think that's the kind of course that these seminaries are offering. So they're, they're approaching these businessmen in Singapore. Uh, they're meeting over the lunch hour mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and talking about uh, their experience as Christian businessmen uh, and dealing with some very important issues that are uh, about how to live out that Christian life. What does it mean ethically? Uh, to overcome those tendencies toward corruption, for instance, that you might find. Uh, what does it mean to, uh, to give your employees uh, a, a fair uh, wage and fair benefits uh, uh, and, and to live Christianly in that way? Uh, what does it mean to use the, the resources that God has given you through the profits, for instance, of your company, mm-hmm. and use those for the glory of God by investing them in, uh, in the church, investing them in missions, and investing them in uh, uh, centers where uh, more leaders can be trained? Uh, those are the kind of things that are being discussed, and, uh, and I think that, that uh, there's a real hunger for that among Christians in those countries that, that haven't seen uh, an integration of their Christian life, their Christian worldview, with what they do uh, 40 hours a week. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Cat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. 
So we get these emphasis on uh, on integration, and we get the with the emphasis on service and thinking through that. Uh, what we, and we've talked a little bit about the challenges of of what happens in a situation where you're a minority. Let's flip it again and, and talk about now where uh, places where the Christian presence is is broader. It's more pervasive, but you still have. Um, you still have this tension that the world and the way in which it operates oftentimes isn't quite exactly what the way Christians uh, would see things, and the tensions that you have. What what advice you, you've said that there's a consistency mm. across all this in terms of how to think about it, but um, the situation that we do have here is a little bit different. You're not two percent. Um, there is the opportunity to engage. There's the freedom and the right to engage. In some of the countries where we've talked about, you don't have those freedoms and those rights. So how do you see uh, what you've seen and learned overseas applying to the situation in which there might be the opportunity to have meaningful conversations across the whole swath of life? Um, uh, does it change very much, or, or are the values pretty much the same? Um, or uh, what what differences make a difference, I guess, is what I'm asking. Mm. I'm not sure I'm, I'm going to answer your question specifically, Daryl, and if I don't, uh, bring me back. Okay. Uh, but, but I'm thinking about a situation in India, for instance, uh, where, as you know, uh, corruption is a huge issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is something that the church believes it can speak into the culture in a way that uh, that the culture might understand and and value the Christian voice in this particular discussion. So there's a contribution. I'm going to use a phrase that we see in the West a lot in a lot of these discussions. There's a contribution to the common good of the of the well-being of the society that the church is trying to step into, and that's, that's right. how they're approaching the question. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Uh, and so they would they would hold conferences, for instance, on on issues of corruption, where they're able to gather together uh, business leaders, non-Christian, mm-hmm. often business leaders, those in the military, those in government, uh, to talk about issues of corruption. And the reason that they're able to bring them together is because. All of the culture is concerned about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're concerned when uh, when there's a building that they build for the Commonwealth Games that collapses and people die. Mm-hmm. You know, they they're wondering, okay, now did the contractor take a shortcut on this? This is not right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're concerned when when there's huge black holes in in the government where money just disappears. Uh, they don't want that. Uh, and so they're able to gather them together and then provide a Christian voice. Uh, into this topic, uh, and and that I think is something that uh, that Christians all over the world are are seeing as possibilities, where uh, where Christians have have positive things to say, uh, to speak into the culture from their own values and vantage point from a Christian framework, that the the culture around them will say, well, you know, that's. That's something that that we would also agree with, mm-hmm. uh, that we would value. We we value those things, uh, and that's a positive contribution that can be made. Now, the harder situation, of course, is when the value that the Christian has is is not necessarily in line with where the culture is going, and we that's right. have seen that uh, obviously illustrated in a whole variety of areas uh, in in our context today. But that doesn't change the calling in in some sense. Uh, it, it may change the dynamics of the calling, uh, but again, uh, the, 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 uh, 
the tension that I see here, let me see if I can make this a clearer question. Um, the tension that I see here is what do you do when the values in the conversation are mixed? Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that's often said today is is that when it comes to monetary issues and, and business issues and materialism issues and that kind of thing in the West, that that oftentimes you get a sense that a Christian is de- is defending a certain kind of economic model hmm. as opposed to whether or not that economic model actually works in delivering to people uh, all that we might hope mm-hmm. a society would deliver to people. I'm, I'm, Trying to do this right. as non politically as possible and may be hard to do. Um, and my my sense is is that sometimes Christians are accused of having values that line up more with a political ideology mm-hmm. or an economic ideology than they do necessarily with Christian values. And so I'll go ahead and say it medical care, which of mm-hmm. course is a huge debated area because of the, what it means for entitlements and the cost of it, et cetera. But on the one hand, you sit there and say, who doesn't want to create a society in which people can get basic medical care and are and whether they can afford it or not, that human beings are taken care of? Right. So you have this tension between what economically might be viable and the human value of reaching out to a person in need and extending compassion to them and being sure that they're cared for. Um, how do, how do you wrestle through those tensions, and does does what you have seen overseas um, help us with that? And the reason I ask that question is because in my own experience, which has mostly involved Europe, um, the, the battles that we get into on an area, say, like medical care, um, uh, most Europeans have trouble mm-hmm. identifying with because because they assume that the human value, even the Christian, they'll even use Christian value, mm-hmm. is t- is to make sure that people uh, are cared for. Um, uh, what do you what do you see in in that kind of area where 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 like I say the values are mixed and and you're prioritizing a mixture of values? I'm trying to think of a another situation besides medical care in the U.S., for instance, can you think of a, a particular issue in a, a different context, in a non-Western uh, co- uh, context where that might be an issue? I, I know there are those things. I'm just trying to get a handle think on Think of what it might be? Yeah. I, well, I mean, I, I think that one of the examples that you gave that, that shows at least the intent are these um, agricultural and fishery programs mm-hmm. in which you're actually trying to help people um, move to care for themselves, but where the ex- initial extended hand, if I can say it that way, the initial extended hand is to make sure they're being cared for. Mm-hmm. If I, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're trying to accomplish multiple objectives at the same time. Uh, and uh, I, I see – and to have – and to teach, you know, it's interesting to teach pastors to have those kinds of skills mm-hmm. is a kind of integration to mm-hmm. put together what you've talked about. That normally in our thinking we would we would we would distinguish, we would we would segregate from one another. Uh, and so I I see the driving of a value, and this this goes back to the model. I see the driving of a value to serve and to step into the situation in a way. That makes clear what what the effort to meet human needs are mm-hmm. in a healthy way, um, determining and prioritizing what goes around it, mm-hmm. if I can say it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, 
and those efforts to to foster development and to and to step in and, and bring a situation in which development can happen seems to me to have those priorities right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think uh, I think I get the drift of what you're, you're, uh, where you're going on this. Um, I think part of it is is an awareness on the part of the church as to what the priority issues are. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, that many of our churches unfortunately have blinders in terms of the the main cultural issues that are going around them and they they tend to either uh, be simply those and and I don't mean to be pejorative here but but it it seems just from my sense mm-hmm. that they tend to whatever issues are around there there's a sense of either denial mm-hmm. that those issues are are going on but they're not important to us or or, or they're just making those up, mm-hmm. uh, or there's a sense that whatever we see in the world, the the church is contrary to those, and so there's a there's a sense of no, mm-hmm. you know, we're the party of no, <laughs> and we're not going to partner with anybody in anything that that it involves a global effort because obviously the global effort's wrong. That's right. Okay. That's right. And so uh, so part of it is a matter of awareness. Uh, can we? Uh, actually open our eyes and see broader than the four walls of our church, of our congregation, to see what's actually happening in the world around us. Uh, and so, for instance, uh, you would have um, – uh, let me take a few examples here uh, – a seminary in, in Manila mm-hmm. uh, that uh, offers programs, uh, typical programs for their, their pastors, uh, trained pastors and teachers and so forth. But uh, but you ask them, well, uh, you know, a lot of Manila lives in poverty. Uh, how are you preparing your pastors to deal with issues of poverty that they're going to find in their contexts? Mm-hmm. You know, well, you know, that's that's something that we really haven't thought about. Uh, now, I'm not saying there is a particular seminary in Manila like that. I yeah. think most of them have begun to deal with those issues. Uh, but here's an issue that that the culture around them is is screaming. You know, this is a huge issue for us. What does the church have to say in a positive way that can contribute toward uh, helping us deal with this issue of poverty? You know, I've got two examples in my own life leap immediately to mind. When I was doing spiritual formation work with our spiritual groups, we would, I would purposely take our students just a couple of blocks across the street, uh, and this is at a time when Dallas was made up slightly differently, although there's still some of this now. But the seminary um, in the 80s and 90s was located in the midst of what most people would say were some of the worst environment in Dallas. But there were all kinds of women's shelters and outreach things, and the point that I, I would take them there and show them these agencies and say, here are agencies in our context that are trying to help people who are in terrific need. And we would simply go and say um, uh, an, hour, an hour a week every other week, you know, how can, how can we help you? And my point was to say, you don't need to create a Christian organization to do this. There are organizations right here doing this into which you can step and volunteer and be a service. That's one example. The second example I think of is in Guatemala mm-hmm. at Sateca. Sateca is located literally blocks from the garbage dump that literally you can watch. If you go, I go every mm-hmm. two years up until recently, and you can literally watch the garbage dump move across this ravine and cover it. Uh, but there were kids 
mm-hmm. living in that garbage dump, and there was a program, and I don't remember who who uh, I think it was World Vision, mm-hmm. ran an orphanage school in the garbage. It literally was located mm-hmm. on the edge of the garbage dump, and seminary students from Sateka were going and were were part of the volunteer workforce that stepped into that place, and and they were helping there. Right. And so it was your example of what are you doing to help with the poverty. They were there also were courses and in, in circumstances in which they were teaching their students how to minister in contexts where there weren't many resources, that kind of thing. And I, in fact, one of the one of the things that we did with that group was, in fact, the reason I was there is we taught a class in which we took North American students from Dallas and from Denver. The person that I mm-hmm. taught it with teaches Old Testament at Denver, Danny Carroll, and he still does this. And he would take a swath of students down, and we'd mix them with the Latin American students. The the ta- class would be bilingual, some in Spanish, some in English. And the one one assignment that the American students had was this. Talk about how you would read the Bible differently if you lived here versus where you live in North America. That's right. And of course, what it, it, they were only there two weeks. But what immediately became clear from what we showed them and where that where the seminary was located and the garbage dump being called and we took them into the garbage dump so they could see what life was like for someone living mm-hmm. in that context. Um, what immediately became clear to them is is that all these theoretical passages on poverty mm-hmm. weren't so theoretical anymore. Right. It was in their face. That's right. And uh, and 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 that produced an awareness and a sensitivity. Um, I don't uh, – virtually everyone we took on that trip would come back and say, I'm not the same person and I'm not reading the Bible in entirely the same way. Not in a negative Mm -hmm. sense, very much in a positive sense of I am sensitive to things now I was never sensitive to before I made the trip. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a great example of awareness. Uh, When I think of these issues, I think usually have three words, and Mm -hmm. I think I've probably mentioned them throughout Mm -hmm. this conversation already, but if I just highlight them. The first one is awareness. Mm -hmm. Uh, The second one is intentionality. Mm -hmm. You know, we need to be intentional about actually providing those kinds of experiences or that kind of teaching, that kind of of, uh, information. And moving in direction of those kinds of services. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So intentionality. And the, the, the third one would would be and now I've forgotten what. <laughs> no, the third one is integration, uh-huh. uh, so that that they see that uh, when we're talking about the text and the context, the word and the world, you know, the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other, as Carl uh, Bart would say, uh, the, the the double listening, mm-hmm. as John Stott uh, would say, we listen to the word and we listen to the world. Not in the same way, of course, right. uh, but we still are open to hear those voices. Uh, and how do we integrate that within our training uh, as we train those who would uh, lead congregations? And then how, of course, are they going to be leading their congregations in a way that has those three components as well? And, and when I think about awareness, what I, what I also think about is the impact of, 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 if I can say it, a mentality. There's a mentality that the awareness – uh, we're aware. We're not aware in some cases because we have blinders. We're also not aware sometimes because we're not willing to think about 
how might I approach this differently than I have in the past, mm-hmm. or what ought I to be sensitive to that perhaps I haven't been sensitive to in the past, that kind of thing. And, and one of the reasons for having this particular conversation on cultural engagement and getting a global perspective on things and asking the questions the way that I have is, is because I've, uh, I'm trying to, to picture for people who may never have traveled outside the United mm-hmm. States or that kind of thing, um, how – uh, life in a different world in a different context does create different sensitivities and mm-hmm. different awarenesses. Mm-hmm. And out of those different awarenesses, there are sensitivities that are created that that make you think differently. But we're talking about a biblically different kind of thinking. We're not sure. talking about just different thinking. It's not something to be afraid of. It's something to, to actually reflect upon and embrace. It is. And, and we think of uh, how we uh, – read the text, also as we read scriptures, as you said, people having experienced that would read the text differently. Uh, and, and you, of course, would be familiar uh, from Luke 10 of the prodigal son. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's an interesting experiment, uh, Daryl, if you would do this. You, you ask people here in the West to retell that well-known story of the mm-hmm. prodigal son. And then you go outside the U.S. and you tell them to retell the story of the prodigal son. See, one important difference is that people in the U.S. hardly ever mention the drought mm-hmm. that took place, mm-hmm. whereas people overseas will always mention the drought. Right. Uh, and that's because that's in their awareness. They're, 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 they live with it. They're, they're so connected to the ground that if things go bad, they understand how actually bad it can get, and so they read Luke 15, and they're sitting there, and they hit that part, and they go, "We understand how a person could be driven to reconsider the way they're they're living their life and seeing what's going on, because because we know what desperate condition that puts us in when we're totally dependent on what the ground produces." Yeah, yeah. So there's a there is that reading of the text that is impacted by their their context as well. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you coming in and discussing these issues with us. Our hope is is that this has been helpful to you in thinking about cultural engagement kind of by looking at it from the outside in. That's mm-hmm. kind of what we've tried to do, and to think about the principles that are involved and the different factors that are involved, and perhaps uh, it's made you uh, pause and think, as it should, all of us, uh, about how to culturally engage in our own context as a result. So, Scott, I appreciate you coming in and doing this. We thank you for joining us at the table, and we look forward to uh, seeing you again. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. Love well.